So now we all know what a recession feels like. It feels lousy. And now that we're out of the recession, we're starting to learn how much long-term damage it can do to an economy. We even know the exact dates that we went into and out of the latest recession. There's an official group of economists who sit around a table and they look at a bunch of data and they say, yep, yep, right there. The last recession started in December of 2007 and it ended in June of 2009. But there's a lot that we do not know about how recessions really work. Like, if you're in the middle of a recession, how do you get yourself out as quickly as possible? This, it turns out, is a very complicated question, one that smart, serious people have argued about for a long time. And today, we tackle this big question about escaping recessions by going small. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. Today, we look at two tiny, self-contained economies, one in a neighborhood in the nation's capital and the other in a prison. And these two tiny little economies had two tiny little recessions. The term economists use is toy economies and toy recessions. And like a toy, these can show us something about how the real world works. And that's why I find it useful to look at toy recessions, something really small, where you can see the entire system. And OK, it's, it's, it's simpler than the real economy and, and uh, there'll, there'll be some important features that are missing. But you can actually see the system as a whole working. This is one of our favorite guests, Tim Harford. He writes for the Financial Times, and he was in New York City recently in our studios telling stories from his new book, The Undercover Economist Strikes Back. And the two examples that interest me particularly interest me because they show us two totally different kinds of recession, and they really illuminate a major argument that's going on in economics. How do you help an economy out of a recession? Tim's first toy economy is in Washington, D.C., the story happens in the 1970s, and it concerns the Capitol Hill babysitting co-op. Basically, a bunch of lawyers on Capitol Hill ruined an economy. It was staffers uh, in Congress who were looking after each other's kids. And the way it worked is, well, you look after someone's children, uh, and then in exchange, they come and look after your children. There are about 400 people in this co-op. So then you had to keep track of who who was doing babysitting for whom. You couldn't just kind of write it down. This babysitting co-op became famous in economics because their solution to this problem, how to keep track of who took care of whose children, their solution was to basically issue their own currency, scrip, on heavy pieces of paper. They basically created a babysitting economy. Now, it just so happens that in this co-op, were Joan and Richard James Sweeney, and Richard worked at the U.S. Treasury. They wrote about the co-op and the economic crisis that was to come in the co-op in a famous paper published in the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking in 1977. The story is also referred to frequently by Paul Krugman, the economist and New York Times columnist. Now, here was the problem. When you joined the babysitting co-op, you were issued with a particular amount of primetime babysitting. And Due to a slightly weird way the co-op was organized, script was being slowly sucked out of the economy. So it was being used to pay the administrators of the babysitting co-op who were working hard to keep this all going. There was just slightly less of this currency every year. So when people joined, they would have about 20 hours of babysitting time written down in this little script. And they would say to themselves, you know, that's not 
a lot of time when you really think about it. What what I'd really like to do is do some babysitting for somebody else. And then I can earn more script. I'll have more of a buffer. And then, you know, if I want to go out in the town, if I want to take a weekend, say, I've got no problem. Basically, people didn't want to waste their precious script on a movie night. Yeah, you could you could blow all this money, all this currency, these babysitting uh, tokens really quickly. So people just wanted to to stay in and look after other people's kids. Everyone's hoarding the money. Exactly. And that is a depression. We're talking about the supply of script being too little. There's no reason why people can't just say, you know what, um, uh, I am willing to, to babysit for your kids because I want more coupons and I will babysit twice as long for the same amount of coupons. So effectively, you are, you are making the babysitting coupons worth more. They, suddenly, they're going to buy you 20 hours of babysitting instead of 10 hours of babysitting. In principle, prices could have adjusted, but they didn't because people are resistant to some kinds of price changes. They're just perceived as being unfair. And if you think about a babysitting co-op, the social element is really important and the economic element is quite small. And so the, the pressure against trying to change the prices is very high. And so they stick even when everybody would be better off if they were flexible. So if I just offered a, a few measly script for a whole night, uh, it would be like I'm screwing over my neighbor. Yeah, you, you would, it would feel like you were being unfair, even though um, actually nobody wants to go out. Everybody wants to babysit for somebody else. So you're, you're reflecting. I'm helping the you're, system. You're helping the system. You're accurately reflecting supply and demand. But we know sometimes people don't want to know the truth about supply and demand. And sometimes social conventions are more important. That's a systemic problem. So nobody sees any individual interaction as being problematic. Um, and in fact, if you took steps as an individual to try to fix the problem, you would be seen as transgressing. You'd be seen as actually doing something wrong. So that is a central idea in the way some economists think about the way the economy works, that these economists can break down all of their own accord, even though individuals within them are acting rationally. So what does the co-op do? They're lawyers. So at first they think, well, let's just pass some laws, essentially. Yeah, um, they make a rule. They make a rule that you have to go out at least twice a year, which maybe only for Capitol Hill lawyers is twice a year some really important binding constraint that's really going to get the, the social scene moving. Um, anyway, that, that doesn't work. What does work is when finally somebody decides to adopt quantitative easing, monetary policy. So they start printing more script. So people, everyone got a bit more. People who came into the babysitting co-op started with a larger allocation. When If they left the co-op, they moved out of uh, the city. They didn't have to pay everything back. So there was just more money sloshing around. And uh, this is where Paul Krugman often leaves the story. Krugman likes to tell the story a lot. Um, this was a total success. So this was a monetary stimulus that worked. And it's curious that it worked when you think about it because... Um, there was no change in the supply of willing babysitters. There was no change in the demand for babysitters. All the kind of the babysitting technology was out there. There was no change in, in anything that really mattered. There was just a change in the number of these pieces of paper. And yet that was enough to get the babysitting co-op moving. And it worked. The quantitative easing worked for the babysitting co-op in the late 1970s. Well, that's all the proof. You need, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and, he, and it's a good point. It's a very good point. Um, there is an a unfortunate end to the story that Krugman did originally. He used to tell this bit, but he stopped, uh, which is that they, they ended up printing too much money and then they had a hyperinflation problem and then the babysitting co-op's economy collapsed again because everybody had 
loads of tokens. Nobody wanted to bother staying in and looking after anybody else's kids. Why would you when you're just rolling in this babysitting, uh, these babysitting scripts? You can go out for free every night. Yeah, except you couldn't because no one was willing to babysit for your kids. So the, the economy collapsed again. So Krugman is absolutely right that this shows that a monetary policy can stimulate an economy and you, a central bank can get an economy going. And he's also right to sh- that this is an example of an economy falling into a depression. It can happen. Um, but it's not right to conclude that it's simple to get economies out of recessions. In this particular case, even in this super simple economy, it was really easy to see where, what was going wrong. Uh, they just overdid the remedy. And they got hyperinflation and the, they got a problem that was just as bad as the problem they'd originally had. But before you take too many lessons from the story of the Capitol Hill babysitting co-op, remember, we have a second tiny economy, a second toy recession. This Harford also writes about in his book, and it comes from a very, very different world. This small economy is a prison camp in Germany during World War II. We know about the economy of the prisoner of war camp because it was written up by one of the prisoners, a guy called Robert Radford, R.A. Radford. Um, he got out after the war. Uh, he eventually ended up joining the International Monetary Fund. He, he, uh, he died some years ago. His account of the way the prison camp economy worked is just fascinating in so many different ways. You might think, well, what, how could a prison camp have an economy? Well, what was happening was uh, parcels were coming in from the Red Cross. Occasionally, parcels would be, would be sent in from uh, prisoners' families, but it was usually Red Cross. So there was food, there were cigarettes, uh, there were um, laundry supplies, you, know, you could uh, shaving foam, razors, that kind of thing. Um, and there would be trading because not everybody cares about shaving. Um, the Sikhs didn't really want to eat tinned corned beef because they don't eat beef. The Brits, they wanted tea. The French wanted coffee. So different people wanted different things. And there was trading. There was also some production. So there was a guy who ran a tea and coffee and hot chocolate stand. And he, he was sufficiently successful that he had a, an accountant working for him. Uh, so there, there, there was this production. And the camp even had an export sector. So it, coffee ended up going over the fence to the Germans. To the Germans. So this prison camp was in Germany. Germany towards the end of the war. They're losing the war. Uh, they're suffering terribly. They can't get coffee. The prisoners are getting coffee from the Red Cross. So there's a market value, a higher market value to this coffee outside the prison camp. So you'd find a middleman and the coffee would go out over the wall and you, you would trade. So other than the fact that it's a camp, it's a pretty good economy. We have a growing GDP. We have an export surplus. I mean, other than being prisoners. Yeah. yeah. The, the, from an economic point of view, I this wouldn't is have working. wanted to be there. But so the, the, the camp was working perfectly as an economy. So prices would adjust really smoothly. Um, prisoners, for instance, used cigarettes as currency. And then they started to, to, to debase the currency. So they'd, they'd roll the cigarettes between their fingers to get a little bit of tobacco out. And so the, the cigarettes that were passing around as currency just got thinner and thinner and less and less useful as cigarettes. Um, And of course, people hoarded the good cigarettes. People hoarded the good cigarettes, which is an illustration of a famous old economic principle called Gresham's Law, which was bad money drives out good. So if you've got a gold coin and you've got a gold-plated coin that's lead on the inside uh, and they've got the same face value, where you spend the gold-plated coin and you keep the real gold coin because you can always melt it down. It's going to keep its value. Same thing with the cigarettes. You keep the fat cigarettes, the preferred brands for smoking, and you use the wimpy, thin cigarettes as currency. You pass them around. In the babysitting co-op, 
prices didn't adjust. We could talk a bit more about why that was important. But in the prison camp, prices would adjust really smoothly. And this this turns out to be important. Prices adjusted whenever uh, a flow of new hungry prisoners showed up, the price of food would rise. Uh, Whenever parcels arrived from the Red Cross, the price of cigarettes would fall because suddenly there were more cigarettes. So prices were constantly adjusting, even though the senior British officers in the camp were trying to stop them adjusting. They were saying, well, it's not fair that these prices keep moving around. Everybody knows what the, the just price is. Everyone knows what the fair price is. It turns out the prices didn't respect people's sense of what was fair. They just respected supply and demand. So in, in many ways, it was a superbly functioning economy. It was, it was close to a perfect market. There's just one problem. These guys almost all uh, came close to starving to death. And the reason is... The Red Cross parcels stopped coming. As the war dragged on, it got harder and harder to get these parcels through. And so the fundamental supply of stuff into this camp was drying up. And it doesn't matter how well-functioning the internal workings of the economy are, it doesn't matter how smoothly prices adjust, if there's no food, you're going to die. And these men came very close, and Robert Radford in this quite affecting passage at the end of the the piece, describes the arrival of the U.S. Army. And he says, as the U.S. Army arrived, we we had it demonstrated to us that there is such a thing as all possible wants being satisfied. Like Everything these guys could have dreamt of, the U.S. Army had, i.e. they had food. So that, that is an interesting example to me. You've got an economy that works smoothly, and yet somehow it ends in disaster. And you might think, well, that's got nothing to do with modern economics. But actually, this is a very important way in which some economists think about the economy as a whole. So they think about it in terms of what we call supply shocks. And the Red Cross parcels drying up, that's a classic supply shock. I mean, you can't get more of a supply shock. So in a modern economic context, what's the equivalent of the Red Cross parcels drying up? Well, one possibility is the price of oil goes from a few dollars to a hundred dollars. Or another supply shock. Um, Somebody on Wall Street did something crazy and suddenly all the loans to your business uh, just get pulled and suddenly you can't get credit. And there are positive supply shocks. So someone invents the internet. Someone invents the cell phone. These are are also supply shocks because they're coming from outside the economy, but they're they're supply shocks that make us richer. Now, this is a really important uh, part of how economists think about one reason why economies go into recession. And there's a fascinating contrast between the prison camp and the babysitting co-op. Because in a prison camp, you can't just print more currency. Even if you sent in more cigarettes, people are still going to starve. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. So the British officer, the senior British officer in the prison camp was trying to fiddle with the economy all the time. And he, to the extent that he made any difference, he just made things worse. Um, But actually, the economy worked brilliantly. There was nothing to be done. Um, And when the supply shock came, there was nothing that could be done to to cushion that blow. It was just game over. And so some economists say this is a good description of the economy today. So uh, the modern economy was ticking along fine. Then it was hit by uh, Wall Street. And we can think of that as kind of being outside the Main Street economy, the, the real economy. It was hit by this financial shock. It was hit by competition from China. It was hit by technology changes, the rise of the robots, the, rises of al- the rise of algorithms. Um, it was hit by a, a massive increase in the price of oil, hit by all of these things. And we're poorer. The economy went into recession. We're poorer and we're going to have to get used to it and we're going to have to adjust. 
And there is no point. If this view of the economy is true, there's no point in government stimulus, for instance. There's no point in trying to print money to get us out of trouble. There's no point in trying to spend tax dollars on uh, stimulus projects. It's not going to work. We just need to adjust to the new reality. And that's a, that's a very significant part of economic thought. Uh, it's, it's called neoclassical economics, really. But perhaps we are in a babysitting-type recession. Perhaps we're in a babysitting-type recession. And Paul Krugman thinks we are. And that's one of the reasons why he likes to talk about the babysitting co-op. So what was different about the babysitting recession is um, the, the economy itself, unlike the prison camp, the economy itself seized up. There was no supply shock. There was no problem outside the economy. It was just that for some reason, maybe social convention, because the stakes were quite low, people just wouldn't do the obvious thing and adjust the amount of babysitting they were willing to do. Keynesians like Krugman believe the same thing is true of real economies. They can seize up. One of the key reasons why they seize up is prices don't adjust. People aren't willing to take big wage cuts. Um, There are limits to just how quickly you can adjust prices in the economy. And if that's true, the whole economy can get stuck in a downward spiral. And there is a big role for someone like Janet Yellen to print money to help, or for Barack Obama to uh, run a big deficit and to stimulate the economy with government programs. So the babysitting co-op and the prison camp, they seem like these crazy little toy recessions, but actually they are expressing the Keynesian view of recessions where the economy itself gets into trouble versus the classical view of recessions where the economy works fine, it's just something else sideswipes it and causes the trouble. And it also, they also have very different views about the possibility that governments can intervene and can help get us out of recessions. The babysitting co-op, the Keynesians say yes. The classicals, the prison camps say, uh, you're usually just going to make things worse. Tim Harford, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure, thank you. Tim Harford is the author of The Undercover Economist Strikes Back, How to Run or Ruin an Economy. As always, we love to hear from you. Email us, planetmoney at npr.org, or you can find us on your favorite form of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. Just stop.